2: all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest, I don't understand that. (laughs) As a man, I just, I don't get it.
3: Welcome to to smartpeoplepodcast.com.
2: Hey, everyone out there. Who's excited for another episode of Smart People Podcast? I hope you are. I know John is because this is right up his alley. That it is. Um, I'm Chris Stemp, And I'm John Rojas. And this week, man, it's another one of those conversations. It's those con- It was so good. I don't know how you plan on editing this, but we, we didn't stop talking. And even our guest was like, guys, I could talk about this stuff. He was passionate about it. And as we say, just plain smart. We got off the call with our guest, and we both just said, that guy knows what he's talking about. He's clearly well-read, well-researched. He's gone through the ranks. So this week, I don't know, John, you want to tell him what we're going to talk about? Because this is one of those things that was right up your alley, and then I just ended up getting engrossed in it as well. We
3: talk about technology, and I've got to pull back the curtain here for a second, because this was super embarrassing. We've done this 98, 99, 100 times. Yeah and the recorder cut off for the first time. We were just talking about
2: how that's never happened. It's
3: never happened, and I started off the conversation, was talking to Nico, he was getting ready to start giving his answer, and then I was just, hey, hang on a second. And I kind of laughed because we were talking to him about technology and and how far it's come, how how much it's advanced us, and those types of things, and here I am, and the technology is holding me back.
2: So we're going to get into our interview. First, make sure you check us out, smartpeoplepodcast.com. We really, we we keep it updated. We get the blog posts up there. We have a, a newsletter coming out. We're just trying to keep that community engaged. And really, these types of episodes and guests just keep us so excited to continue doing this. Share it with people if you love it. I mean, just tell people about it. We're just trying to grow the community.
3: And if I can ask you to do one thing, please head over to iTunes and leave us a review. Give us a star rating. Leave us a comment on there. It helps the show tremendously. This week, we just saw that we were featured on the top of iTunes again. And that's because we've got people subscribing and we've got people leaving reviews. And the more you do that, the more it helps us out and the more people we can get on board with Smart People Podcast. And
2: then we can get awesome guests like this week. Nico Mealy. He is an entrepreneur, angel investor, consultant, one of America's leading forecasters of business politics and culture in our fast-moving digital age. His first book, The End of Big, How the Internet Makes David the New Goliath. It's really cool. I mean, obviously, in the title, you get what he's talking about, but it's this thing of connectivity and having a supercomputer in your pocket and what we can do and how that's changing the landscape of the world. And the thing is on the surface, that's a very wide kind of subject. Everybody can think about it. Oh, you know, internet, we all know social media, but man, the stuff we get into and the, the way he's got to answer for everything that is, that is in my opinion, on point. I mean, he's not advocating by any means oh, the internet's great. Go read this or buy this. He's telling us how it is.
1: Yeah.
3: He also co-founded Echo Ditto, which is an internet strategy and consulting firm. And he's worked for nonprofits and other organizations such oh, as, tell him what he did I for- don't know if you've ever heard of him, Barack Obama, when he was running for Senate, he was involved on that team. He's worked with the Clinton Global Initiative all kinds of cool organizations, Fortune 1000 companies,
2: you name it, he's worked with them. Oh, and he's also a professor at Harvard.
3: Yeah. That being said, conversation's awesome. Check it out. Nick Mealy. Nico, thank you so much for being on the show. My pleasure. I came across your book, The End of Big, How the Internet Makes David the New Goliath on Amazon, was flipping through it, was absolutely fascinated by it. And I just wanted to to kind of jump right in and talk to you about Cray supercomputers and how they were these million dollar computers that corporations and the government owned. And now, you know, we have many people walking around with iphones which are more powerful than these cray supercomputers and just wanted to touch base on what this just means to to society now
1: yeah well first thanks it's great to be on the show i love uh love podcasts and um you know i think we kind of have lost sight of how quickly things have changed how quickly computing has changed you know i was born in 1977 and even even then, it, that was pretty late by computing standards, but even then, if you ask most people what a computer was, they would describe something that would fill a room or even two rooms that cost five million bucks, that was essentially unavailable to most Americans. And today, here we are 35 years later, and 130 million Americans have a, uh, have a smartphone that is as powerful or more powerful. than than the Cray supercomputers of 35 years ago. And it's that change that I think is worth spending some time thinking about. We really haven't reckoned in some crucial way with that massive diffusion of power. Here's something that was really the domain of big institutions. I mean, imagine if uh, you could walk into any strip mall in America and buy a nuclear bomb. I mean, that that's thats the kind of power we're talking about, that kind of computing power. And today, people walk around within their pockets all the time. Part of what I was interested in is that we don't really even have very good language to talk about this, that our vocabulary is really kind of weak, it's not really the internet, it's not really mobile phones, but what is it, right? It's hard to say. I, In the book, I talk about it as something, I try and call it radical connectivity, because when I get down to what I think has really changed for power and for people, I think it's how connected we all are. We're connected all the time at virtually zero cost with no hierarchy, with a real kind of flatness to it and that's what i that's kind of the essential change that i think we've seen in our institutions in our power. My book is broadly about what happens to our traditional institutions when all this when when you know when every american can walk around with that kind of power in their pocket.
3: So when you talk about americans walking around with this type of power in their pocket, what kind of things have you seen that have changed? Do you have examples of things that i mean i'm sure we could think of uh, a bunch off hand, but 10 years ago weren't possible that they are now today.
1: I mean, I come originally out of politics, so it's easiest to start with political examples. Okay, perfect. Uh, In 2007, if you go back and look at the news reports in 2007, even as late as November of 2007, Hillary Clinton was the nominee. No one thought Obama could defeat her. Obama was not, he was, he's not even really entirely on the radar. The intensity of what has happened in politics, I mean, Bill and Hillary Clinton built the modern Democratic Party. The building in D.C. literally has their name on it. <laughs> this, was, this was their party they'd spent there, and you know, Hillary arguably had spent her entire life running for president, worked on every major presidential campaign. And here is a guy who's been in public life less than a decade, who defeats her. Yeah, I mean, that was, that was just unthinkable. And he defeats her in a large measure due to the power of the technology and the tactical advantage they gave him. But it also points to another challenge. In my book, I talk about that there's two things going on. One thing that's going on is the power of this technology, this, this enormous diffusion of power. But the other thing that's going on is that our institutions haven't done a very good job. The reason why Obama could defeat Hillary so easily is that the political parties had really become more like cocktail parties for major donors. There, If you could figure out an alternative way to raise money, which Obama did via the internet, then you could take on the party establishment pretty easily. And so it's two trends at once, is the diffusion of power in, in the form of computing. And it's also the way the institutions have failed, the the bad job our institutions have done. And when our institutions do a bad job, then people opt out. They seek alternatives. And that is, uh, and the technology makes that easy for them.
3: Yeah, the thing that I always think about is the fact that newspapers, readership on newspapers is going down. You've got stuff that's online, but one of the things that, even for myself, has taken over that is just getting my news via Twitter, where I have people that I follow that are tweeting things as they're happening. I don't have to wait for the news and that type of thing. I mean, do you think that these big institutions, companies, corporations, whatever it may be, have lost the power for good? Or are they going to find a way to use this same mobility and quickness?
1: I tend to think they've lost the power for good. The trick is to make sure that we don't lose some important stuff in the process. So let's talk about newspapers for a minute. Well before Craigslist and Google took away advertising revenue from newspapers, newspapers were undergoing fairly dramatic corporate consolidation and being forced to make quarterly reports as for publicly traded companies with increased profitability quarter over quarter. And I'm not sure that really is a good idea for newspapers. Newspapers are, you know, a mildly profitable business, not a dramatically one. And that started, that's that's a way the institution had started to fail. Another way the institution had started to fail is two of the biggest historical events of my lifetime was the Iraq War and the financial crisis, and in both of those, I think our newspapers did a terrible job. And so here you have an institution that hasn't, I would argue, hasn't done the greatest job, has kind of gotten far afield from some of its core principles and core values. And not only that, but the business model for newspapers is built on 80% 80 of newspaper revenue is traditionally from advertising. And I just don't think advertising works in the digital space, in the digital age. And consequently, I'm not sure newspapers work. It was this kind of artificial bundling where if you wanted the Red Sox scores, you had to buy the whole paper. (laughs) And that ended up funding a bunch of other stuff like investigative journalism. At the same time, like I'm not going to defend newspapers. They will not be the vehicle for news in the future. What I'm most worried about for news is not breaking news because there'll always be a value to that. There'll always be ways to make money. There'll always be citizen journalists on the front lines. What I'm most worried about is actually investigative journalism. Is I think of it as accountability journalism, where a core function of journalists was holding power accountable and really doing a lot of hard work like digging and frequently under threat to figure out what was really going on. And that is what we're most in danger of losing. And that is We have to find new ways of funding and supporting that because it's a crucial part of our democracy and the success of our society.
2: I'm glad you brought that up because I do agree with you in terms of finding ways to fund projects or things that we need as a society. And it's getting tough because when I think about content on the Internet, and John and I have very different views when it comes to technology. I don't even really like Twitter. I don't. I'm just not a tech guy i I don't know and so i'm starting to see people are just in a race to create content it's not good it's not thought out it's haphazard almost because they want to climb a search engine and they want to put some adsense ads on their page and and there's just so much clutter do you have an opinion on how that is only going to exponentially grow as technology becomes more available to everyone
1: well, you know, I think it's actually Eric Schmidt who talks about, I think I'm stealing this quote from him. <laughs> That's okay. I, I, may, I may butcher it. But it's something to the effect of that if you take everything ever created in human history, like if you go back 40, 000, roughly 30,000 30 to 40,000 years ago, we have cave paintings by early humans. And the written word shows up roughly or 4,000 years ago, we'll say. If you take everything ever written, everything ever painted, every photograph, every movie, everything ever created up until about, oh, I don't know, 2010, that's roughly how much material is created every 48 hours today. <laughs> that's right. unbelievable. And that's just like a giant volume. That's a that's a fire hose, right? That's not even a fire hose then doesn't even begin to capture it. And I think that there's two things that happen here, right? One is – Kind of paradoxically, that can lead to a kind of dark ages, (laughs) that it can be harder than ever to figure out what is worth reading or consuming. Exactly. And, And also what is true. Figuring out what is true, especially with the collapse of other credentialers like newspapers, gets harder. At the same time, I think another, another challenging byproduct is the, Corey Doctorow calls it, the ecosystem of interruption. The internet just is full of ways of interrupting anything you're doing that always seem funner. <laughs> yes, it is. And that, that creates, I think that creates real challenges for excellence and for intimacy. Because both excellence and intimacy, I think they both require, in different veins, excellence and work, intimacy and relationship, they require presence, they require focus, they require that you not be interrupted. I think that's a challenge for everyone. I think it's especially a challenge for leaders. I do want to offer a little bit of a counterpoint, though, because as much as this giant volume of information and music and movies and I dare say podcasts, (laughs) as much as all of that is flowing at us like a mad rushing river and is just exponentially growing every day all the time and things get lost and we lose ourselves in it. At the same time, more knowledge is more directly available to more human beings than at any time in human history by a just gigantic margin. And that is exciting and that opens up opportunity and that that may be what we need. We have some real significant challenges facing us in the next 50 years and it may be we need everyone on board to help figure it out.
3: You have all this content that's out there available now and it's because there are so many people that have the means to create that content. I mean... I can shoot a movie with Chris here on our iPhone and put it out on YouTube and have people watch it. And it's something that somebody can watch where before you had to have the backing of the studio. You had to have the equipment, the camera, all that kind of stuff. So there really were these great barriers of entry to produce content. And now anybody can do it.
1: Yeah, you know, one of the interesting chapters in the book or it was interesting to research and write was a chapter on Big Fun, which was looking at entertainment. When you look at news and, and investigative journalism and holding power accountable, it's very clear, very stark what happens. Like one of the stories I tell is the LA Times did this. There was a mayor in a small town in Southern California who got elected, started paying himself a million bucks a year, paid his nine closest friends a million bucks a year, and then proceeded to intimidate, I mean really intimidate like a, like a, like a, like a warlord or dictator, everyone in the town to shut up. And he managed, he ran the town of Bell, California like this for a decade. And it was the LA Times investigative journalism that broke that story open, and now the guy's in prison. And so that's a pretty stark argument for the values, maybe not the business model, but for the values and approach of investigative journalism. When I look at entertainment, it gets a lot harder to make a clear argument for why we need the blockbuster, right? <laughs> right. Like you know, especially when you look at how it's failed. One of the things I talk about in the book is that uh, in 1981, the top ten highest-grossing films, every single well, not every single one of the in 1981, the top ten highest-grossing films, seven of them were original stories, original characters. Seven of the top ten highest-grossing films. Fast forward to 2030 years, 2011, every single one of the top 10 highest grossing films is a sequel or a remake. Harry Potter, you know, the 12th, Iron Man, the third. <laughs> and I think that, I think people are kind of fed up with that. That's why they're turning to YouTube and to Netflix and to other vehicles for entertainment because people are just hungry for some original stories, original characters, and what is wrong with that? Like, what what are we going to lose? If we lose the organizational layer of entertainment, what are we going to lose? And so I talked to a bunch of people, and the two things I, kind of two arguments I came across. One, it was actually really hard to find anyone, even Hollywood executives, who would argue for the blockbuster, right? I mean, in general, the response I got was, yeah, it's going away. Guess I'm not going to make much, that much money anymore. <laughs> the two, the two responses, the two kind of counter arguments. One was that you know, Game of Thrones just finished. Game of Thrones runs about six million bucks an episode, yeah. and I'm not sure you're going to Kickstarter six million per episode, ten of them. And so, how did like when I was talking to one executive, she said, "Well." You could bring down that cost a lot, but how much do you care if the score is done by a real orchestra or by a dig- or all digital? And how much do you care if the horses they're riding are real horses or just CGI? Right? I thought about that a lot, and I decided, Meh, I'll take the digital orchestra and the CGI horses.
2: <laughs> uh, you, you know, that would be my response, actually. I mean, so if it's gonna... I
1: kind of rejected that notion, even though it kind of the my I have a heart of a poet, and it hurts me a little to think like that. But I also have the brain of a nerd, so I love CGI. The other argument, which I think is more serious, is that in 1967, one of the highest-grossing films of the year was a film called Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. And it featured the biggest names and the biggest stars in the, in the industry in Hollywood at the time. And it was a movie about interracial marriage. And when it came out on almost every movie screen in the United States... There were twelve. There were more more than twelve. There were more than a dozen U.S. states where interracial marriage was illegal. And so this movie prompted a whole discussion about interracial marriage. Now, it was of course, it was in the context of the civil rights movement. It was not, you know, it's not like Hollywood did this, but it was part of a larger kind of public space and social discussion about who we are as a nation. And if all of us get on Netflix and YouTube and watch our own little channels, that's what we're really going to lose in the end, is we're going to lose shared experience. And if we lose that kind of shared experience, that makes leadership much, much harder.
2: It's tough. When I think about how people are flocking to YouTube or social media or some of these websites, I can't even think of all of them, but Sometimes I wonder about the degrading of what we find interesting. I mean, when I go look at the most watched videos on YouTube or the most read blog posts and all these things, and almost, I don't want to say all, but the majority in my opinion, and this is not the tech opinion, obviously, is it's just like you said, the stuff that is funner. It's comedy. It's quick hitting. It seems to be detracting from real art or creation. Am I just being a a scrooge?
1: Aristotle said excellence is a habit and habits require discipline. And I think that our technology, its job is to make things easy but it kind of conversely makes it harder to be disciplined in some real way. Nicholas Carr has a book, *The Shallows*, which started as an article of *The Atlantic Monthly*, and the, I think the title was, "Is Google Making Us Stupid?" <laughs> and you know, he kind of makes a pretty compelling argument that the internet is making us stupider and shallower. And I don't entirely buy that in the sense of I truly believe that technology is what we make of it. One of my obsessions is contemporary poetry and modern poetry. And the internet is awesome for someone like me because like, I'll be reading something on poetry and it'll reference some obscure poet or book. And 10 years ago, I'd have to like go to the library and they might not even have it. I'd have to request it, wait for it to come in or what have you. And now in the middle of reading, I put down a book and I go look it up online. And I'm able to just have this enormous access to such a deep, thoughtful vein of quite literally all of human knowledge. And that should be intoxicating, and it should prompt and excite us to further excellence and awesomeness. But too frequently, in fact, it turns into stupid cat videos and <laughs> some of the more terrifying cul de sacs of Reddit. And so I don't think I don't blame the technology for that. Sure. I think in some ways the technology makes it a lot easier, but we have to develop the norms and habits to get there, to build a better, I don't know, it's kind of a moral call, I guess, at the end of the day, to become better human beings, to be to more fully inhabit our our real selves. And I think that is the great challenge of the internet and of the technology.
3: I was going to play devil's advocate up until about you went into that answer there, because I look at it as if you want to learn something, you have the internet at your disposal to be able to seek out these very niche things and things that not everybody knows about that you can dive into. Like if you're really into poetry you're able to find the community around that. If I'm into coding, I'm able to find the community around that. And then you have people that just want to unwind, relax, and laugh. And I think that's why there's so much pop comedy style stuff that's out there. Everybody loves to laugh. So people just make this content because they know they're touching everybody. Not everybody loves poetry, but the people that do, they seek it out, they find it, and they dive into it, learn more about it, and that type of stuff.
1: Well, you know, I mean, I think one interesting thing here is anytime I get too depressed about the state of the technology and the internet and making us stupid and shallow, I go back and I read what they were writing about comic books in the 30s. Yes. <laughs> it's like, yes. you would think comic books were going to turn us all into vicious brain-dead animals. Right. Uh, and so I guess I, guess I, I truly believe it, it really, it's, it, it's up to us what we make of it. Yes, And I th- I do think in, in the life, in, in in human history, in the course of human history, on the long view, we're, we're at a kind of an essential moment where this stuff could really be awesome for our future. It could also really uh, take us down a notch here. Yeah. I mean, you know, I always think about the Romans, right? I'm kind of obsessed also with Roman antiquity. And, you know, Rome, the Roman Empire had more miles of paved highway than the United States until the mid-'80s. Ancient Rome, 2,000 years ago, had more water pumped into it than New York City until the 80s. Rome had this incredible engineering prowess, and a lot of it was built on their mastery of cement. Now, here's the crazy thing. What happened was, with the fall of Rome and the fall of the Roman Empire, they just lost a bunch of knowledge One of the most important things they lost is how to make cement. And I actually noticed last week, last week, scientists figured out how Romans made cement. And it turns out it's totally revolutionary and may change all of the construction going forward. I'm (laughs) I'm not kidding. It's wild. And so the danger is that we will lose, we could just set ourselves back a few hundred or a few thousand years, right? And that we need to find ways of using that technology to encourage our best self.
2: I want to switch gears a little bit and talk to you about. I know you have a firm, Echo Ditto, and it's kind of a digital strategy tech development firm. And I'm sure you could explain it much better than I, but I'm kind of interested in your take because you have done some amazing things. Like you said, working on Howard Dean's presidential campaign and what you do now with your consulting in terms of, establishing a digital strategy, I was hoping you could tell us for for those out there that work at smaller companies, maybe want to start their own, maybe want to just sound smart in front of their boss. What kind of things are you seeing really work these days that might be new or what I might not know of because I'm not your client?
1: Well, I mean, this ties into something we were talking about earlier, right? Which is all this content being created, this huge volume of stuff. But Really useful, really excellent stuff is pretty hard to find, actually. And the reason it's hard to find is it's actually hard to write and make. And one one of the big things I think people can do is think long and hard and carefully about their expertise or their firm's expertise and use social media, blogging or YouTube or podcasts or whatever, to surface that expertise, to really be useful and compelling. You know, too much of what happens is brain dead marketing speak. And uh, I actually had a funny situation where about a year ago, my, my own firm, we sent out this email to people that was kind of brain-dead marketing speak. <laughs> and no one said anything, but I just thought about it and I was like, well, I wouldn't read that email. That's a stupid email. <laughs> and so I then, like a week later, wrote another email and I said, hey, people, I think we really screwed that one up and let me tell you why. Let's really get into this. One of the things about the internet is, uh, in my book, I call it it's the end of big minds. But another way to say it is the end of expertise. That The traditional vehicles for credentialing people, for saying, this guy really knows what he's talking about, carry less and less value, <laughs> less and less impact. And at the end of the day, people are really going to judge you and hire you and assess you by... The extent to which you're able to write and speak and present smart things, right? The extent to which you're able to show you deserve to be an expert.
2: Oh, I'm so glad you said that. That whole statement was just fantastic. I think about, you know, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I'm not going to call any other podcasts out. But if you sign up for their ebook or their newsletter or their this and that, and then they send you, automatic response and it's one tip on whatever that you could google search and find better it drives me literally insane it's just this drivel you know and so when you were saying make it useful and compelling and people will find it i i want to believe that obviously you have seen it work i was just wondering probably for my own you know interest but do you have anybody that you follow or recommend following maybe it's on twitter or their blog That you are just amazed at the content they put out?
1: Oh, there's a handful of people, actually, now that I'm thinking about it. You know, I'm obsessed with politics. And so Chuck Todd works for NBC and writes an email every day called First Read. (laughs) It's very inside baseball, but I always read it. Another, there's a guy, uh, Dave Pell, who has something called Next Draft that every day is an email, kind of summarizes the news. But it's very smart. It always finds really interesting, insightful, provocative things. You know, I've been experimenting. So those are two off the bat. I mean, I've also just been experimenting with news.me. Uh, which is, you know, dig dig trying to be relevant again. And <laughs> one of the things is that is interesting about it to me is really does seem to do a pretty good job of surfacing really interesting things from my social network, from my Twitter and Facebook feed.
3: I know we're coming close to time here, but I oh damn it, I didn't even notice that. Oh, I yeah. love this conversation. I need to have Guys, you. I didn't
1: even get to half of the interesting stuff. I know. I, I'm always game to talk. Oh, talking is my funnest thing to do. Sure, then I'll keep talking to there, yeah, because Yeah, no, we can keep going, sure.
3: Awesome. I need you to help settle an argument that I have with one of my buddies who both of us are tech nerd type people. And the thing that came to light recently was with Prism and i was telling him i was like i can't believe we willingly gave over all this information and now those companies are basically letting the government just come in and do like a dragnet to pull that information all that kind of stuff and his response was well they give us these awesome free products so we've given up privacy from the beginning And I said, yeah, I agree. We've given up privacy to the companies, but I didn't expect them to be like, oh, sorry, we're giving over all your information to the government with any type of warrant, anything like that. What type of opinion or thoughts do you have on terms of service now because of the fact that they're... 5,000 pages long anyway. Nobody reads it. And now that we've added the extra wrinkle that it turns out these companies are handing the information over to the government.
1: Well, uh, I, uh, I think a lot of things about that. I mean, one, <laughs> I would recommend there's something called uh, TOSDR.org. Terms of service didn't read. And uh, <laughs> these guys have one of the smartest approaches to thinking about terms of service and trying to change how it works. Terms of service is a perfect example of the pace and direction of our technology headed in one direction and the realities and process of our major institutions headed in the opposite direction. And in the end, we're getting screwed in that yeah. equation. Uh, and so we definitely got to rethink terms of service. You know, Doc Searles has this book, The I think it's called The Intention Economy, Intention Economy. And he has a totally different way of thinking about it that I love. Uh, He calls it VRM, Vendor Relationship Management, which is you should have your own individual terms of service. I should have Nico's terms of service. And Facebook and YouTube should have to decide if they're going to accept mine. (laughs) Like why are are we all accepting theirs, right?
3: I mean that's a great point, yeah. Because –
1: they have a they have something of incentive to make it incomprehensible, and so I think that now on the issue of there there's a number of other issues wrapped up here. I mean, one issue wrapped up here is a question of privacy. I mean. Scott McNeely, about a decade ago, said, if you're worried about your privacy, you're 10 years too late. (laughs) So by that count, we're like 20, 20 years too late. And I do think that part of what has happened is that technologists made a bunch of decisions. And one of the decisions they made a long time ago is that privacy was not that important. You know, Mark Zuckerberg's got on the record with this, saying he doesn't think privacy is that essential. And we're just beginning to understand the profound implications of that. Uh, A surveillance state is one of them, and we've been living in a surveillance state, a corporate surveillance state for some time, in terms of advertising and targeting. And so I don't, you know, it is terrifying to think of the the government as now having that power, but I'm not sure why it's a shock or a surprise. It really shouldn't be. At the end of the day, part of the question it raises for me is is privacy an important part of citizenship? When you go in to vote, you have some expectation that that's a private act. And you want it to be a private act so that if someone's in power, like the mayor, and you don't like him or her, You can vote them out without consequence, without knowing they're going to show up at your door with the cops in the morning. That's part of a crucial part of the secret ballot. And we're really living in an age where that's probably not the case anymore. I I half-jokingly say that the Obama 2012 tech team knew more about, you know, swing voters and key voters in swing states than than the KGB knew about defectors (laughs) in (laughs) Stalinist Russia.
3: I mean, is that not how they won the election, though? Like, I was under the impression that their tech team was so far ahead of Romney's camp that they knew exactly what the message was to convey when they went into those swing states and all those types of things.
1: Uh, yeah, yeah, that was definitely part of it. I think there may have been a little bit, it looks to me like a little bit more complicated than that. Okay. Um, but that is definitely undoubtedly part of it. I mean, when I think about this Edward Snowden stuff, what, what that strikes me as is that our institutions have failed. They have failed. We, they're, we're, they're totally unaccountable the head of the NSA lied to Congress. Senator Wyden from Oregon asked him point blank a year ago, are you monitoring every American's email and what have you? And he said, no, we're not doing anything like that. And then Andrea Mitchell, after the leak, said to him on camera, said, how could you possibly have said that to the senator? That was an outright lie. And he said, well, that was the least most truthful way of answering that question. (laughs) the least, most truthful way, what in (laughs) God's name are you talking about?
3: And people accepted that answer. That's the funniest part. It's like,
1: oh, yeah, sure. I I don't think people did. I mean, I think that people aren't outraged about the loss of privacy. I think people gave that up a long time ago. People are outraged that our institutions, that there aren't vehicles for accountability. I mean, you watch The Wire, right?
2: Oh, my gosh. Every episode.
1: Yeah. And so- The Wire was about, there are all these scenes about getting the judge to agree to do The Wire. To spy on an American citizen, you have to have a good reason. And we have actually the institutions in the process to do that in a way that holds that power accountable. Yes. And the government just totally sidestepped all that. And that's what we should be angry about much more than the loss of privacy, because the loss of privacy is kind of like impossible to actually navigate.
2: I talked to a lot of people, both my age and older, about this to try to see if it's a generational thing, and I have a feeling by the time, you know, my kids, if I ever have them grow up, they won't even think about privacy. They won't even know what that means. I mean, I was having a conversation with my dad and he said, imagine when some of the kids now run for presidency, the things that are going to come out due to connectivity and social media are going to be ridiculous. And I said, yeah, but by that time, nobody's going to care. Somebody's, you know, shotgunning a beer or whatever, smoking something. It's going to be like, eh, it was, we were young Well, once. you know,
1: we might also end up more forgiving of some of these things. But I, I, it's hard for me to see how all of this is necessarily going to play out in that way. I mean, I think privacy, I think people understand they've given up their privacy in these bizarre terms of service, but they, they don't have good ways of valuing it. And then when it's suddenly stripped away, they really get upset. I mean, you saw this stuff with Sean Parker's wedding, right? Yes. Yes. And so like suddenly the world he built, the world he designed along the values he espouses around privacy, transparency, around the news media, works against him in a dramatic and overwhelming way. And he's pissed. The reason we have something like privacy is... There are good reasons for it. It's not like it was a historical accident. You know, in Europe, they have this legislation pending that you should have a right to be forgotten, that you should, it, It's that that's a fundamental right, that you ought to be able to say to any internet company at any time, forget that is me, that is mine, forget it. And that's a radical notion that I think is awesome.
3: What do you see in terms of, you brought up the Sean Parker thing, and in my eyes, it was like a witch hunt. You had some people out there that were like, oh, he did these things wrong. He didn't get these permits. He didn't do this and completely like stomped on his privacy. And then you've got people that were not involved in the Boston bombings and Reddit turned into super detective mode and, you know, we're making threats to people that weren't actually involved in the bombing, but they were 100 percent sure of because they had a photograph of something and they found these people's location where they lived and we're harassing them, that kind of stuff. I mean, do you see that this technology is just going to allow more and more of these types of witch hunts?
1: I actually wrote a blog on Huffington Post about this exact thing, that this goes back to I said a few moments ago that the force and direction of our technology is one direction and the process and nature of our institutions is in another. And in the case of the Boston bombing is a perfect example of that. It is totally natural. Like go back to the beginning of our conversation we're talking about, we went from crazy supercomputers to everybody walking around with a smartphone. In that world, totally, it makes absolute sense to me that after the bombing, Everybody wants to help find the guys. Sure. Right? Like, of course everybody is going to want to help find the guys. Of course Reddit is going to try and do this in 4chan or whatever. The crazy part is that the FBI and the Boston police didn't have any way for people to help. Right? Wow. Yeah. yeah. That's you know, interesting. I never thought that. About is that is the crazy part. And by the way, you know, the Boston police or the, I can't remember if it's the Boston police or the FBI. And they did an excellent job. I'm not saying they did a bad job. I'm just saying there was a lot more to be done. They put up this form where you could submit photos or videos and it was like right out of 1999. It was like <laughs> nothing. We have over a decade, more than a decade of best practices in the private sector for harnessing the wisdom of crowds. The April issue of Harvard Business Review was like all about how to like best practices in harnessing the wisdom of crowds. Corporations have figured out how to do this to minimize legal risks and maximize outcomes. And yet this enormous moment, I'm also stunned that no news outlet did this. And the reason why we need the FBI and the Boston police to do it is they can bring integrity to it. They can channel the intensity of that participation into good ways rather than into screwed up ways that identify the wrong guy.
3: That's interesting, too, because when you look at PRISM and you think about, that too with that being like the institution heading the wrong way if they reached out to people to help with stuff and allowed people places to post information and provide information and in those type of things where they have those signs that say if you see something say something and then there's a phone number where if you see a suspicious package you call a number and you let people know but if there was better ways for them to gather this information, I'm sure people would be less pissed.
1: I think you have to go beyond gathering the information. I think you have to give people some real power. You have to give them some real responsibilities and roles. You have to say, we got 10,000 photos and here we need you to sort the photos these ways. So you're not asking people to identify the suspects, but you're giving them real work to do. I'm assuming the FBI has a bunch of experts in these things who have rules you could follow to try and shape the direction and pace of it.
3: That's a completely interesting idea. Crowdsourcing the U.S., to help with national things or to give people a sense of purpose and a sense of pride and those types of things. I mean, that's another way to even get more involved in the country. That's interesting.
2: In the end of Big, you talk about a lot of the things that the connectivity of the internet is going to do in the future. And I want to remind listeners that if they enjoy this topic, they can download your book in audio form for free by going to audiblepodcast.com slash smart Or just go to smartpeoplepodcast.com and click on the Audible image on the right hand side. I highly recommend your book. And it's really important to John and I to support our sponsors and show Audible some love. But I was wondering, as you mentioned earlier, you haven't even really scraped the surface on things you find most interesting. What do you find most exciting and also maybe most terrifying about what this Uber connectivity can bring
1: us? There's the good news and the bad news here, right? The bad news is I'm really worried about what it means to be a leader in the age of radical connectivity. I'm worried because it seems to me that the flat network nature, the distributed power, encourages some of the worst aspects of leadership, like being a demagogue (laughs) and not being held accountable, and actually makes it hard to encourage the best aspects of leadership. Like, do you know Godwin's law in any online discussion, given enough time, someone will be compared to Hitler?
3: Yes. <laughs> I mean, that,
1: that, that's like, that's actually what I'm worried about for leadership is we'll end up in a kind of fascism. On the flip side, what I'm most excited about is I think it's very hard to ignore climate change. And it is It's even harder to feel like there's any hope or there's any way out. You sit surrounded by cars every day, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that part of this radical connectivity offers us tremendous hope for navigating our way out of the kind of dead end we're at right now, the way our society is built on burning oil.
3: You just see stuff every day that you take a look at and you're just like, what is going to happen? And it's hard to,
2: but maybe what you're saying is we can solve those issues perhaps due to everyone. I mean, it's one large brain almost if we can all meet in this virtual space.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, this goes back to, we need some process and hierarchy and ways of identifying expertise, but if we're going to do it, this is the way it's going to get done. Because let me tell you, those old institutions, they have failed us. Like, they have seen this puppy coming for a long time, and they haven't done anything.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> and not only have they not done anything, but, I mean, part of my concern here is that if you were born after 1980 in the United States, you, your quality of life is almost certainly lower than your parents' You make less money, you have more debt, you probably have, your education was probably more expensive and lower quality, your healthcare is probably worse, and by the way, uh, we knew that we were screwing up the planet and making life miserable for you and your grandchildren, but we wanted our SUVs and flat-screen TVs.
3: Well, you're speaking right to us. Now I'm super depressed, so... (laughs) Yeah, And,
1: and so that's why I am totally fed up with the institutions we've got i just feel like they have dramatically failed us they're not interested in building the future if i had to place blame i would blame the baby boomers as a generation and i think that it's it's really up to us it's up to us to build the future and we got to figure out some different ways of doing this stuff we got to figure out fast and I'm in some ways really excited to leave behind the old ways.
3: <laughs> mm. No, that's awesome. I joke around with my dad all the time saying, "You know, I think I'll actually enjoy work when the baby boomers retire or leave and, and just get out of the way from these ideas that we have as millennials and whatever is below us. I don't, don't go bashing the ba- I mean <laughs> hey I will I'll bash away too. We're equal opportunist bashers <laughs> on here. Well, Nico, thank you so much. I mean this. This conversation's fascinating. The book, The End of Big, is awesome. We highly recommend it to our listeners to go check it out, make sure they read it. Where can our listeners go to find more about you, like your website, Twitter feed, any of that type of stuff?
1: Well, I'm Nico, N-I-C-C-O, on Twitter. Easy to find. Happy to continue the discussion there. You can buy the book, endofbig.com slash buy. And uh, I have my own website, Nico.org. But of course, I don't take the advice I gave nearly as well as I should in that uh, I'm a little too infrequent about posting useful, compelling things. Because
2: well, <laughs> thing it's, it's, it's hard to that write them. It's hard to write them. Well, you the wrote thing, a book. tough. Yeah.
3: I mean, yeah. I think that covers it. Like, if, if you can put everything together and write a book, that, I think, trumps putting stuff
2: out on, <laughs> onto a blog.
1: Let's hope. <laughs> That's, uh, I'm, I'm not optimistic about that.
2: Again, thank you so much. I mean, this is just, it's been a great conversation. I love this stuff you, we learned. And really, congratulations on your success. And, and keep teaching the uh, the youth about this, this type of thing, because somebody's got to do something about it.
1: Well, thanks, guys. It's been a real pleasure. And uh, looking forward to a future discussion. Absolutely.
2: Awesome. Thank you so much. All right. Have a great night.
1: Adios. Adios.
3: That was our interview with Nick O'Mealy. It was a longer one this week. Hope yeah, you enjoyed it. It's
2: because we couldn't stop talking. You know, I, I see on his website right now he has a quote from the Big, Big Lebowski. Lebowski. Yep. <laughs> no, Donnie, these men are nihilists. There's nothing to be afraid of. I don't know why. It's just God. That's so good. I, I, this guy was awesome. Oh, by the way, we forgot to mention he was also Esquire magazine's best and brightest in America. So anyways, thanks for joining us this week. Hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as we did. Help us out by really just try to tell somebody about it. Put it on your Twitter. Anything you can do. I'm trying to expand this this network we got going on.
3: And if you tweet Nico, which is at Nico, N-I-C-C-O, make sure you include us as well. We want to be involved in the conversation and see where things head.
2: So anyways, as you've seen, we've been pretty good about getting these things out. Same time, same place. Make sure to same subscribe. channel. Yeah, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss any of the amazing guests. They, they just keep going up, and this is fun stuff. Thanks for joining us.
3: See you guys next week.